Hello and welcome to the Brew and Bite podcast, episode 24, Cheese and Keys, sponsored by the London Mac User Group. My name is Craig and this week we have a bumper pack show coming up for you. Apple spying on our photos, we look at a history of the mouse and what part Apple played in the design history of the popular input device. We play cat and mouse and what will kids have in the future? Stay tuned to find out. Tonight, let's first say hello to Alistair. How are you this evening? I'm good, thanks, Craig. Just catching up on this month's news. Brilliant. And Martin, how are you today? Uh, very well, Craig. Yeah, we're uh, we're working away. So we've got very busy at uh, work as well as uh, all the other bits and pieces we do here for both Elmug and the, the other shows that I'm involved with. Brilliant. Always keeping busy. We have had lots of Apple news this week. It's hard to pick a subject of which we was going to talk about, but I think something that's been hitting the headlines is Apple is scanning our photos. Alistair, can you tell us any more? Well, this would be to do with the requirements in America to check for child sexual abuse material, which I think is called the CSAM, which Google currently already does. And what's going to be happening is Apple are going to make a hash of the images which you've taken. So they're not actually looking at your actual images, and then they're going to have a hash of the images they know to be exploited and then compare them when playing a giant game of Snap. And for those who don't understand what hash is and think it's like corned beef hash, it basically is a unique uh, signature or a way of identifying a file for a computer. And am I right in saying that even if the original image has been edited, it can still be found? Yes, because what they were doing in the past was people would change the color of the tint of the picture or change the size or crop it or put it at a 45 degree angle so that it wouldn't be recognized. So what they're now doing is they're not doing pixel by pixel counts. They're doing sort of the general understanding of what's in a picture. So it's more like AI. So that's where the, the hash algorithms come in. It's it's quite clever. And apparently it's going to be scanned inbound coming into the iCloud servers. That way they don't have anything on files. So if any of the American letter agencies want to access it, they can't see it because it doesn't exist. The, the images don't exist. It's just going to be a token to say we have found something wrong or we have found nothing. And Apple also said they're going to be putting up a load of false negatives to even out the count. So there's going to be a load of sort of pictures of Mickey Mouse or pictures of Cupertino or various other random individuals. Maybe lots of people sunburn, you know, lots of orange faces and stuff. I don't know. It will be interesting. Should people be worried about all the photos they have on their phone? Basically, you, you just have to be more clear about who would be prosecuted. So you'd only be prosecuted, my understanding, if you're a US citizen, but you'd be informed by US authorities to the UK authorities if you had images which were as described by this particular act. But if I understand correctly, it's only children who are being exploited rather than children who are your own children. So for example, if they're in the bar or if they're playing at the seaside, that I think is different. But each of the companies have a different idea. So Facebook have got a very tough ruling on this one, which is zero. 
you're not allowed to have any naked individuals, which cause a whole load of problems for breastfeeding mothers groups on Facebook. So it'll be interesting to see where we go from this. But as far as I can see it, if you don't store anything in iCloud photo, they can't look at your photos because it's not on your phone which they're doing in technology. I'm going to ask Martin this one because I know this has come up in the news as well. Do you think Apple did a bad job at explaining it? Um, I think they did almost as bad a job as Microsoft trying to explain what the new operating system was going to be and how it was going to be released. Um, yeah, no, they, they didn't cover themselves in glory on, on that one. And I think good old Craig Federici had to come out with a further statement to clarify the Apple position to try and make it clear because it did at first initially appear that Apple were going to come down the line, search your phone for any kind of photographs and then dob you in straight away. Uh, unfortunately, some some bad reporting kind of gave that impression. Um, but if you actually look into into the details like uh, Alistair has done, it's only what you upload to the iCloud that's affected. So if you haven't got auto sync on your phone, for example, so that all of your images aren't going straight up to the cloud, and you have got some images on the phone which are not allowable, that won't, uh, you're not going to incur the irk of Apple. But as soon as you make that link to send your photos to iCloud, you're opening up that whole can of worms about what they will look at and what they will mark down as uh, CSAM. Um, Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Well, obviously, anything that, that reduces child pornography is it's got to be a good thing um um but i i my concerns and uh, alistair mentioned it are what about the innocent photograph that you may very well be taking of your own children or whatever um are you immediately going to be get tagged with a, a red flag you know watch this person they're, they're putting up um what could be considered child porn i think it's a very tricky slope to go down and it needs to be managed extremely well and i'm um, again this comes about every time i'm sure class action lawyers are absolutely rubbing their hands about this that uh, they can be filing huge great cases against apple for poor old auntie betty's uh, grandchildren who were on the beach at hailing island have suddenly now she's marked down as a child pornographer it's good and bad as, as with all these things isn't it that the, whatever you look at there's you know the basics of what they're trying to do i can understand and fully support but how they're going to go about it is is extremely technically difficult i know apple are extremely popular and famous for their privacy which lots of their recent adverts have promoted. But using Craig Federici's words in that it enables a more private world, is that right or wrong? Someone said that if you've got nothing to hide and you've got nothing, there's no problem about people having access to your, your kit and your equipment and stuff like that. But as a person, I've got lots to hide. As There are personal photographs of my family and my children and my wife that I don't want anyone else looking at. That's not for me to say. I contain an awful lot of information on my phone about other people's uh, accounts, bank accounts, uh, details like that, which I have to have uh, for making payments and stuff like that. That surely I don't have the right to give that to anyone else. Craig, if you want to give your Building Society accounts to uh, HMRC, that's your right. But do I have the right to do that? And it's, you know, am I in breach by doing that? So I think most people do have private stuff on, on their phone or on their iPad or on their computer. So I don't go along with the, 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 the adage that, you know, Know, oh, if, if you've got nothing to hide, then you you should be open about all this stuff. Don't agree with that. The 
the main thing is, as you probably uh, read, was it's, it can only be compared to the database which is used by both Facebook and Google and other American organizations, which brought up an interesting question. This will only work if it complies with the American view of what was there or what the American databases have there, to which one person said, well, that's all very interesting, but you might end up with a slight racial stacking because it's only what is currently available from the American phones and what was collected there. And they said, okay, but if Apple are picking up images worldwide, that will probably help shift this database from being a largely American-based database to a worldwide database. So in some ways, it could help because you'll have a greater database, so it will sort of reduce the chance of false positives. Second of all, you probably also read that you won't actually be told if your phone has identified anything. And we also go back to the other factor which used to come out in the past, which is don't put anything on your phone which you wouldn't be happy for someone else to show in a court, which is the same thing that we say about don't write anything in email you wouldn't want someone else to read out in a court. So there is this adage that if it's your is it your phone or is it someone else's phone? So if it's a business phone, the business owns your photos and owns everything on it. The laws differ when you come over to Europe because the laws are not so clear as they are in America. So it, we've ended up with a sort of strange difference of how each law will be applied in different countries in Europe versus America. So I think they're just trialing it in America at the minute. Isn't one of the conditions when you agree to use the phone that you're agreeing to the laws of America? Yes. The other thing is if you've agreed that your iPhone complies with the iTunes agreement, the iTunes agreement says your device is a US citizen. So it's a US citizen based currently in in UK. So for example, uh, section 12, the iTunes agreement says you will not use iTunes in Cuba, Syria, or North Korea, because under federal requirements, they are not allowed to. The fact that you're not a American citizen is irrelevant. You still have signed up to an agreement which says you will comply with the US law. So we've ended up with this sort of thing that people have already signed up for it ahead of time. That could have interesting combinations with, with the current in America, they're still trying to push through for this back door, aren't they, on the phone? And as long as that that's held off in, under US law, and of course in Britain, it's different. They, under, the, under the last legislation, they do have the right to insist that you open the phone and give them the details. Uh, and it's an offence not to. But if you're saying, well, hang on, the phone is a US citizen, therefore I can't give you the details of a US citizen. Would that create a grey area of of a legal dispute. Uh, this actually has gone through Parliament already once. Yes. So under the two thousand, I think it's two thousand and. 10 or 2005 anti-terrorism law, they, they said that unlike America, where you have a constitution where you're not allowed to incriminate yourself by giving up information, which is something difference between something you know and something you have, something you have being a fingerprint, which is why phones have fingerprint IDs, not passwords and on a lot of places under uk law you are duty bound as a citizen of the uk to give up all information if required even if it incriminates yourself correct because under the anti-terrorist legislation in the uk it was discussed in parliament and it said yes you all you have to be declared is that you are involved in an act of terrorism or we are looking for evidence to prove that you are not yeah, guilty till proved innocent. 96 hours held in a police cell without charge. Yet again, it's all changing. Rulers versus society, who knows? On a more happier note, are we going to see Apple Store people events 
So rumour has it that today Apple is being relaunched in some stores and potentially including the US and the UK in that one. Um, yes, I think it would it would be the next step to to our um, getting, getting back to normality uh, to bring these items back to the stores. At the moment, um, you're not you're not limited to the time you can spend in the store. Um, you can still wander around looking. Uh, for quite some time but i think the last time was i was at regent street they haven't put all the little cubes and benches out for you to to sit around you can't actually sit down and do something it's not as easy as it used to be but so the last time i was in regent street all the nice little boxes and cubes that they used to have for you to sit around on weren't, weren't around i didn't see any of those at all so yes, it, hopefully they will. Uh, is that meant to be at the end of the end of this month, Craig? Is that the date I saw? Rumor has it, yeah, the thirtieth of August. No, that'd be interesting. Ha- have any of you used any of the today Apple sessions? I did one on photography. It was all to do with when portrait mode first came out onto the iPhone, and so that was quite interesting. I went to the one at Covent Garden, and they had the big square in the middle of the Covent Garden store, and they had the big display, and they were talking about it and showing to us, and that was quite interesting. But that was the last one I went to. But the last time I went to an Apple store you only i was only you had to say ahead of time which particular product you wanted to look at and once you looked at a product you were escorted out and this was before we went completely unlocking this was when apple stores first opened after the big lockdown and that was quite uh, a change because if you wanted to look at an ipad and an iphone you had to choose which one that's actually a really good point in having to go to an apple store in the last week there are still lots of restrictions they are probably the toughest of any of the other retailers on the high street in that you still do need some form of reason or appointment to go in and the apple express store queue is longer than ever but i'm sure that varies dependent on your location i actually tried one of the apple today events online this wasn't necessarily a tutorial this was to watch and be part of an interview with one of the DJs that's on Apple Music. And I'll be honest, yes, the discussion was great. It was nothing like being in a store. It was also one of the most frustrating things to join. You had to download extra software. They use Cisco's WebEx system. And by the time you've got it all set up and running, you've probably missed the first 10 minutes of the discussion, which isn't the best thing. So I think even Apple are probably more excited to get back to some form of normality at that point. Alistair, have Apple finally fixed people's problems with their scanners? What was going wrong? So people were getting a notification coming up when they moved to Big Sur, which said, you do not have permission to open this application when you're using a scanner but the printer would work. Had any of you seen this when you connect up a new printer? No, I haven't come across that one. I haven't had that either. So it's what they call a multi-function printer. So it's a printer scanner in one. And what happened is if the software, which say, for example, HP or Canon, which I've come across, which had this, I haven't come across any Epsoms yet, but if they were using a piece of software called Twain, the Apple would install the latest open source piece of software and install it to run the printer, but they didn't have a piece of software to run Twain piece of software because that worked on Intel native Um, machines or it was using 32-bit architecture so it wasn't going to work on Big Sur and I think that they uh, were having a long time trying to sort of work out what was causing it and even if you opened up image capture image capture would say we can see the printer we can see the scanner but we can't talk to the scanner because that piece of software was not there. Our main topic of this evening 
which is what is it alistair it's called keys and cheese so this week we would thought we would look at not something necessarily apple but computer history so we decided to have a look at the history of the mouse and as history normally links to apple in some way or another the lisa macintosh was one of the first macs ever to have a mouse or make it a household item. But at a price of 10,000 US dollars for a home machine, it wasn't exactly very popular. It wasn't up until the early 90s when we saw the introduction of a scroll wheel in a mouse. Moving slightly further along, exactly three years later, we saw the introduction of an optical mouse rather than a ball mouse. Who remembers the ball mouse when everybody used to go to use the mouse and you turn it over and someone's took the ball out of the bottom for a joke? Or or the other one is it didn't work properly. So you had to to open it up and you had to clean the wheels because it wouldn't go left or it wouldn't go right. And so you had to clean the wheels uh, to get all the the grime off and then it would start working again. That used used to be a regular with the mighty mouse on a sheet of A4, if I remember rightly, (laughs) trying to get the scroll wheel to work back on the top. And for bonus quiz question, who can remember the only mouse Apple produced with two-tone ball inside it? The puck. Correct. Ray. <laughs> of course. The one that came with the original iMac. Yep, yeah. And I think from an Apple fanboy point of view, I think it was also voted the worst mouse that Apple have ever made. Yeah, that was a that was a real style over function uh, event, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. It looked great in the av- advertisement shots, but uh, yeah, we pretty quickly got rid of them in the office. They were uh, they were replaced. I I had mine, which I had with um, my first Mac, but the one uh, I had it with my G- uh, blue and white or blue and ice, as they were called. Remember the G three Terra, and then the other one, which I thought was superb, was the one that came with the G four. Do you remember the one which was clear, completely clear, so you could see all the way through it? And, of course, there's always been the controversy over uh, Apple's insistence on, insistence on, on only one button. Everyone else was going down two-button route and then three, four, five, 206, and a million and seven at the moment. But, uh, yeah, there was always that issue about, well, how daft you had to hold down a keyboard to get a second uh, mouse click. Uh, that that uh, caused quite a bit of grief. But then it became muscle memory. I remember doing that. One of the few times when I had to work on a, a PC, I was trying to hold the button down while I was pressing the right-hand clip. All manner of uh, shenanigans happened on the screen then. That was a, a real eye-opener. I think in terms of mice with lots of buttons, that brings us nicely onto the next random fact of history of mice, is that the gaming industry had a lot of answer to the development of really precise mice and that people wanted to click lots of different buttons for their games. And that was in the early 2000s when... This type of mouse was anything between 70 to 100 pounds. But Alistair, what part did Apple play in the development of the mouse? The really cool thing about the original Apple mice, do you remember when you used to pick them up with the laser? And the laser, if you shone the laser on a piece of paper, you got a little bunny with the eight with little ears and apple did that on purpose because they said little children would pick it up and then look at it and then put it over hold the laser over the table and go look 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 bunny bunny uh and so so so, so um you could call it evolution you know it, it was meant to look like a cat you know with spiky ears so it's meant to be evolution so apple said it was the cat eating the mouse ah uh-huh. 
Didn't, didn't know that. But what were the early history of a mouse? What was the first development of a mouse? So the very first development of a mouse I came across was in Canada during the Second World War, where they had a radar station, and they were trying to move around the radar station, the, the screen, and they put a bowling ball in the, like a crate, and you'd move it with your hands, and it would move what was around on the screen, and their little rollers, which would identify where you were, so you could move left or move right move up but this was before cursors so it was just like a way of moving around the screen so that was quite clever and then there was the box mouse if i remember correctly where the term mouse came from because the original mouse which was done i think in the 1960s i think at stanford it had the cable coming out the back which is where the mouse term came in and it could either go left or right or up or down, but it couldn't do both. And it was a very early pointer. And then it moved on to Xerox Park, which I think Martin knows about. Yes. What you're discussing there was invented by Douglas Engelbert. Um, he came up with the first designs for a mouse in the early 60s. And then he then joined the park team and met a gentleman called Bill English. It was uh, Bill who helped turn the idea into the first prototypes that they were using at park which had the first ball system in them to give them uh, diagonal control as well or multi-control so the two of them are actually kind of the godfathers of the mouse as we know it of course uh, you mentioned there about how apple got involved well apple bought their way into park for what was it a hundred thousand dollars i think you said put a little uh, short video in the show notes yeah and then promptly um as steve said stole all the best stuff disappeared off and lisa and Macintosh history was made uh, when they they turned it into. The issue, though, was that although they had the mouse as a control item, it was only moving a cursor to a point, and then you had to type in a command. It was uh, Apple's uh, use then of making the mouse as a pointer that could also uh, initiate uh, different parts of the program that made the difference and that started the, the mouse technology that we know today. If, if anyone remembers the opening of Minority Report, do you remember that film? And where he's looking at the, the videos that appear on the wall and he lo- uses the gloves with little identifiers in them so he could work out where it was. That was a system designed to see what would what would you do if you didn't have mice? So you would be using gestures. And at the time when that came out, that was quite revolutionary and quite clever and we sort of got the same principle on our phones because i remember when the very first microsoft phones were coming out and they used to have a little cursor and you used to have to use a stylus to move it around as a pencil and it was rather fiddly because you couldn't really use a tiny stylus on a tiny screen to try and tap anything on the menu so this idea of not having a mouse on a phone has worked very successful but on the computer it's incredibly successful but i think the cleverest thing they did was work out put the cursor in because when you first put it on they had a straight arrow and if you look at all arrows today they're at an angle because it looked like it was traveling so when you're moving it across it, it, it you could see where the point was whereas when it was straight our eyes couldn't focus on the straightness and it was a, a clever designer who worked out that you had to put it at an angle originally and if anyone remembers the original g3 mice the cursor was not a proper headed arrow it was just the head of the arrow without the stalk and it was quite revolutionary you had this sort of like flying sort of object going around that was great On that subject, which mice do we use? So I'm a Logitech fan. So I have the MX Anywhere 
mouse, which I think is brilliant because I've got clutchless scrolling on there. So the scroll wheel goes, you can do it as a click, 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 or if you push it down, it can go whiz all the way up or whiz all the way down. So if you've got a huge amount of photos you're trying to scroll through or something like that, that's very useful. Plus, it's also got a nudge control. So if you're trying to move left or right, especially if you're doing design or you zoomed into a photograph, you can, instead of moving your mouse left or right, you just nudge the wheel left or right and it moves you slightly left or moves you slightly right. And you've got programmable buttons on the side. But it, I find it better ergonomically for my hands. Martin, are you a fan of Apple mice? Yes, I, I seem to be in the minority of one here in that, uh, yeah, I've been a, a, a magic mouse man for many years uh for me it works really well i like the design of it it fits in my hands which maybe it depends on the size of your hand it fits in really well well uh, and it tracks for me quite smoothly i love the design of it no horrible port sticking out of it for you to charge something in it you just uh once a month you plug it in turn it over plug it in and it's ready for another month's use so i i, I like that fact i used to have the one which had the rechargeable batteries inside the mophie kit but for me it does work the problem for me and uh, to be fair i've only tried a couple of Logitech basic mice was that there was there's just too many buttons and too many different pieces to, to memorize for me it's, it's a simpler mouse for me to use but to be fair I will invest in a Logitech mouse try one out um, have a look at it see whether it adapts I believe a lot of people who do a lot of Final Cut Pro work swear by them because as you said you can program certain buttons to do certain things which saves a lot of keyboard cut shortcuts so in the interest of fairness I will get uh, what are they the MX3 I think is the latest Logitech mouse. So we'll get one of them and we'll do a review on it and a comparison and maybe I'll have to hold my hand up and say I've been wrong all these years. But we'll we'll see. But the one of the things which I think Apple are slightly not talked about was if you ever go onto Windows you'll notice that you have a white arrow on a white background, which is virtually impossible to see at times. And then you have to turn on accessibility mode to make it go like Apple does, like a black cursor on a, on a white background. Or you could do bright colors now in Windows 10. But Apple traditionally have a black cursor on a white background. But also the cleverest thing Apple did was that if you shake your mouse, it gets really large. So you can go, where's my cursor gone? It's such a small little tiny detail, but it comes incredibly useful. But that's not the only input device that comes with a Mac or a PC. What about the keyboard? Now, does anyone use a third party keyboard? No, but I am considering a third party keyboard. And are you considering a mechanical keyboard? They seem to become popular again. I've seen a lot of people extolling the virtues, but I personally think the clackety clack sound would drive me me mad again it's uh you know we got away from that with the old uh, golf ball typewriters i use the uh, the apple wireless keyboard with the uh, number bar on it. it it works perfectly well for me i can i'm not a speed typist i'm not even a touch typist i sort of bang away two thumbs and a couple of fingers and i don't type that fast I type very badly and i do a lot of spelling mistakes but i'm not a speed user but seeing some people who do type extremely well they, they prefer maybe a bit more feed but a touchback feed back from the computer keyboard than these flat ones that we're getting used to but then again maybe we also have to consider that the youth of today are getting so used to using a glass screen keyboard they don't need that feedback they don't need that touch coming back yeah yeah they're used to now touching uh, doing uh, all their work on on a glass screen which has practically no feedback and for them it's so you watch kids 
you know, doing all their emails and doing their messages and uh, everything else they use with the uh, with the two thumbs. Well, you, you know what they've, they've joked? They said, children of the future will have incredibly strong thumbs. <laughs> <laughs> and that there was a hilarious thing I saw where by you could get these stick-on square pads so that you could type more quickly and more accurately. And then you could also have pointers. So if you didn't, so if you had long fingernails, you could get round the fingernail to type onto the type quickly. So you do little stalks that you clip on, which I thought was hilarious. But uh, I'm a fan of the OS Mac OS uh, wired extended keyboards. So wired meaning that you don't have to worry about battery. Um, more importantly, the one big difference about a wired keyboard compared to a Bluetooth keyboard is certain Macs will not boot into external drives or will not boot from recovery mode unless it's a wired connection. It has to be an Apple wired keyboard. So I have a couple of wired keyboards lying around here. But the big difference I've noticed is I've got the, if you look at the current OS extended keyboards, they're flat. Whereas the older ones that came with the original iMac, you know, the white iMacs and the previous ones, the, the GeForce, they were curved keyboards. And we've, we've moved away from a curved keyboard to a flat keyboard. And the spacing between some of the keys on the latest MacBooks is a lot closer to the keys have you noticed that so if you're on like a, a macbook it's it's quite it's quite difficult sometimes to type if you're used to a slightly wider space between the keys yeah apple announced this week that you can now buy the touch id keyboard separately to the imac would martin consider one for his m1 mac mini or not uh, i would yes because being used to my uh, macbook pro being able to use the touch the touch button for payments and items like that that's really useful and that's not available on, on the the keyboards we have at the moment so yeah a keyboard with an eye touch with a, a touchpad button might be very useful the only thing i will say alistair is is yes I, I i understand your point about the wired keyboards but you can use the charging cable on your wireless keyboards if you're in that situation guess what the most expensive keyboard to get second hand is surely not an a, it was an apt link uh, an apt table so the most expensive keyboard currently from what i've discovered was there were the short so the small wired keyboards but so it's like your normal keyboard that you get the small ones but these were wired they were only sold for the education market and for other ones and they have a higher retail value than the current wireless version of the same thing they used to be going on ebay five years ago six years ago for 60 quid each that's actually a really good point the same topic would you be willing to pay 125 pounds for a touch id button keyboard is that not the most expensive keyboard apple have ever bought out yeah it's an added expense whether i'm going to do that again just to get one key button though i'm I must admit, the only thing I found out tonight, which I didn't realise, another did you know, is that when you're in your system, if you need to get into system admin or something like that, you can now double tap your watch. It will open the password up and away you go. So that may um, suffice for um, for uh, the instead of getting the... Uh, touch keyboard so i had a, a different scenario to potentially upgrading the keyboard is yes it would be great in that i don't have to keep typing in my password every time to install a piece of software or change a privacy setting to an access to a folder but i quite liked the idea of having a keyboard that i can easily switch 
from machine to machine if they're next to me. Apple keyboards can't do that, but every other manufacturer seems to be able to do it. There's literally a switch at the bottom of the mouse from Logitech, so you can connect it to three different devices at once. And I think their latest keyboard does the same. I can use the same mouse and I just click the button on the bottom and it will switch from the Mac Mini to the iPad. Or if I click it again, it will go to the MacBook Pro that's sitting next to me, which is actually really useful. I don't know why Apple have not done that. I know Monterey is going to be the one where you can drag from device to device. So will that answer my question? I don't know. I've not tried that. Yeah, no, I'd, ha- I'd have to go into Bluetooth settings to change to a different machine if I wanted to do that. Yeah, okay, good point. But I'm still convinced I like the the touch id (laughs) last but not least the mechanical keyboards has anybody got or seen a keycatron keyboard which seemed to be the most popular thing at the moment i've seen them the the ones whereby you can they build them for you out of the mechanical things and they have different colors and different pressure things and uh someone was showing me one and he said just press this single key down and feel the response from this compared to this other key and he said one feels rather soft and the other one you can feel the response from and apparently a lot of people were getting finding that their productivity was slowing down because they couldn't hear themselves type because they were in two quarter room when they were working from home so they needed something to give them that sort of white noise background so they could feel like they were back in an office again. It's also very popular with a lot of younger individuals I've come across. There's a particular tech writer who I was having a look at, and she had the latest M1 Mac and one of these mechanical keyboards, which was custom built for her. So I think maybe the working at home craze over the last year, year and a half, had something to do with that. Maybe they missed the office environment clicking of the keyboard. But in doing more research into these types of keyboards, you can actually remove each individual key. And as Alistair said, swap out the colors. But one interesting and random fact is that you can actually buy add-ons that change the level of pressure of the key. So you can actually buy three different levels of pressure as much as three different levels of clicking noise of your keyboard if you're really that fussy, which seems to have become a very popular thing. And I know there's some particular podcasters and YouTubers out there that seem to be making videos on which is the best sounding keyboard. I don't know what your thoughts are on that one. Obviously, I'm missing out on a musical treat here. I could actually be um, writing songs based on click ability of uh, mechanical keyboards, maybe. It uh... wasn't that they were saying it. It was like an IBM keyboard from the mid-80s, which had the best tone tonality or something to it. That's priceless. But last question of all is... What's next for Apple's input devices? Will it be a keyboard? Will it be Apple glasses? I think there has been efforts already made to try and do uh, eyeball tracking to see what you're looking at. The mouse, the mouse pointer moves around where your eyes are, are looking, which might be a, a system that might come into into play. The other thing about again. I think it was a few years back, there was a, um, a device which you could put on the desk which made the, the keyboard was pro- was projected onto your desk. Uh, and you could, again, you where your fingers rested, the system would identify you were trying to press the P key. So that might, uh, again, be a way, a way forward. But I suppose the things is these like, keyboards have been around for so long now. They're a, a ubiquitous part of computing. It's whether or not we could lose all that muscle memory that we've got from from typing and using a keyboard 
to something different. Alistair, what do you predict for the future of input devices? We're, we're forgetting two at the moment. First off, some people use pencils, Apple Pencil for writing. That comes in quite popular. But also the amount of times I myself use speech dictation because often I can't work out how to spell a particular word. So I'll turn on speech dictation and it will write it for me. Or I might not be next to my phone or my iPad and I need to, I'm dictating to it as I'm thinking about what I'm about to say. And it comes in very useful. This also is very useful if you, if you have, um, blindness because you can't see where the mouse is. So I think we're still going to keep a lot of diversity. I think we're just going to be able to just switch quicker from one device to the next. And I think the mouse is going to be around for ages, and I still think the keyboard is going to be around for ages. And every time they try and get rid of the keyboard, people come back and say, well, you know what? We still need it. Remember what they said? We'll go all have voice-activated televisions. Never took off. I think that's actually a really good point. I think voice dictation has got legs in the future. I'd also suggest that if you look at everybody that owns an iPad, I'd say potentially most people have a keyboard or a keyboard case to go with it. So I don't see us losing keyboards anytime soon. But I'm still a fan of trackpads. I love the external Bluetooth trackpad. Maybe it'll be a trackpad that has a texture to it that you can type with. Who knows? I, I find trackpads give me an RSI problem. I don't I don't like the trackpad. It, it, uh, it's... I think it's the sideways movement of my wrist on the trackpad which makes it feel uncomfortable. Whereas the mouse, when you're moving sideways, it tends to be a whole arm movement. You're not you're not flicking the mouse using your wrist. Uh, so yes, I tried trackpads, but it, it, in my case, everyone's different. It didn't particularly work because of that that wrist movement that I, I didn't enjoy. So I went back to using a, a mouse. Of course, there are others. There's rollerball type. Know, you can use a, some people for a rollerball. If they haven't got finger dexterity, they, they can use the palm of their hand to, to use that. Uh, so there's, yeah, there's a, there's a numerous different uh, input devices out there. And it's whatever really works best for you. But uh, as I said, you have to try these things. So um, I, I will, I will try the MX uh, Logitech uh, mouse and, and report back. And on that topic, I think, think we can leave it to our listeners to get in touch with us and tell us what input devices they use or even have they got something completely different that we've not suggested okay did you know this is just a little side part of the uh, podcast where we explain did you know a particular trick? Did you know a particular fact? Did you know a particular story or uh, a particular highlight? Um, and we try and just bring these out. Uh, the one I was going to mention tonight, which I think um, a lot of people have forgotten about, is the option button on your keyboard. Um, if you look at the option button and you uh, highlight any of the menu items in the main menu bar, the, and press the option one, it will give you some other options. If you look on there, it, it gives you an idea. Sometimes you can, um, uh, in the say for in Safari, you can close all the tabs at once. So if you've got a dozen different tabs over the end of the day, instead of having to click each one to close them down, go in, go into the menu button, press the option key, look at file, and you can close all the tabs in one go. And that works on ne nearly every application has a couple of different changes. One of the things, if you're in um, Finder and you want to get to the library file, which is a hidden file, again, if you hold down the option key and uh, view, you will see the library and then you can get in there to to um, 
clear out some old caches or any changes you need to make. Perfect. Go for it, Alistair. So this is one which I picked up from Craig, who showed me this one earlier. So this is one where if you take a picture of a with live photo turned on, so those who don't know what live photo is, that's the, when you're taking a photograph, that's the circle within another circle with the dotted circle around the edges of it. And if you take a photograph, then you go and tap the photograph you've just taken. And then if you swipe up, you'll see that it says effects. And then the effects you have are live, loop, and bounce. So you could have the live, which is like a little tiny video or something. Loop, it just keeps on looping, or bounce, and it sort of bounces around a place. So it's like sort of funky things. And they've also got long exposure, which is the, the final one. And I just thought some of you might just want to waste a bit of time by doing it. That's quite a useful thing, especially for long exposure photos. I use it mostly for that. My suggestion this week, as if anyone has seen the recent film that Apple has been promoting on Apple TV called Coda. No, I haven't, but I do want to see it. Apparently, it's very good. So the story is about a young girl called Ruby is the only member of her family that isn't deaf. And she is currently at school and she helps her parents run her run their family business and she's very good at singing and it's about her story and what she could potentially become in her singing career and how the family deal with it and if nobody is yet to see it it comes highly recommended it won many awards at the recent Sundance Film Festival and it is very very good so that's something completely different and i think we've come to the end of yet another episode of the Brew and Bite show and firstly we'll say thank you to Alistair yeah it's been fun tonight yeah it was good fun <laughs> brilliant thank you and also thank you as always to Martin thank you gents it was uh, interesting talk- talking away with you and uh, and and learning things I learned some new things tonight as, as my dearly departed father said to me you should learn something new every day that's very true indeed and also thank you from me I'm sure we'll see you even sooner than the last episode.